If you have a Bible with you this morning, let me invite you to turn to the book of Revelation. That would be the last book there in your Bible, Revelation chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and I've entitled the message this morning as the persecuted church, the persecuted church. We're looking at the seven churches of Revelation. Last week, we looked at the loveless church, the church of Ephesus, and this morning, we're looking at the persecuted church, the church of Smyrna. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, the apostle John writes this, He's he's writing as Jesus is revealing information to him that he wants communicated to the seven churches. He says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning. We're praying that you would continue to enlighten us, to be able to understand what Christ said as he gave John this revelation that was to be distributed to the seven churches of Asia Minor. We're praying that this morning that you would help us to see the timeless truths and that you would help us to see what it is in our life that you would like to address today so that we might grow in our love for you and in our desire to follow you no matter what. Encourage us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, persecution is an awful thing. Nobody I know goes around just saying, hey, I want to be persecuted. But sometimes God chooses to use something as awful as persecution in order to bring about something as wonderful as your personal growth and faith flourishing in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no higher goal in the Christian life than to become like Jesus. That's what we're here for, being transformed more and more into his image. And sometimes, in order to become like him, we have to also be willing to suffer like him. And that's why the Bible says in Philippians 3, verse 10, when Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection which all of us would say a hearty amen to. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. But then that verse goes on to say, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that's where a lot of us, if we had to be honest, would be like, oh no, I'm all about the resurrection. I don't know if I want to become like him in his death. And throughout church history, There have been incredible, intense times of persecution, and few of these, in my opinion, compare to the English Reformation, in particular the years 1555 through 1558 during the reign of who is known as Bloody Mary. These years marked an unforgettable drama as many reformers gave their lives for the sake of the gospel and for the sole sufficiency of Christ, whose one-time death paid for sins for all who would repent and believe in him. 
And I'm talking about men like John Rogers, John Hooper, Roland Taylor, Hugh Latimer, John Bradford, and Nicholas Ridley. J.C. Ryle, in his excellent book, Light from Old Times, gives great detail of many of the martyrs of the English Reformation. And in a smaller excerpt of that book, Light from Old Times, called Five English Reformers, a smaller book of the larger book, Ryle describes the death of the most significant accounts. Listen to what he writes. Quote, It is a broad fact that during the last four years of Queen Mary's reign, no less than 288 persons were burnt at the stake for their adhesion to the Protestant faith. Ryle continues, Indeed, the faggots, which were sticks used to kindle the fire, never ceased to blaze whilst Mary was alive. And five martyrs were burnt in Canterbury only a week before her death. And out of the 288 sufferers, may it be remembered that one was an archbishop, four were bishops, 21 were clergymen, 55 were women, and four were children. Listen now to J.C. Ryle's account of that first leading English reformer's martyrdom. His name was John Rogers. Here's what he writes about the very first martyr who was burned at the stake. He says that the first leading English reformer who broke the ice and crossed the river as a martyr in Mary's reign was John Rogers, a London minister. On the morning of his martyrdom, he was roused hastily in his cell in Newgate and hardly allowed to dress himself. He was then led Forth to Smithfield on foot within the site of the Church of St. Sepulchre where he had preached and through the streets of the parish where he had done the work of a pastor. By the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one whom was a baby, whom Bishop Bonner in his diabolical, diabolical cruelty had flat refused him leave to see while he was in prison. So he'd been in prison for a few months. He's going to the stake to be burned. He's not seen his family in a while, and he sees them as he's going to the stake. He just saw them but was hardly allowed to stop and, when, and then walked on calmly to the stake, repeating the 51st Psalm. An immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot in Smithfield. Up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of such death or could hardly believe that the prebendaries and dignitaries would actually give their bodies to be burned for their religion. But when they saw John Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily, and as he was walking unflinchingly, into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. Even the French ambassador wrote home in a description of the scene and said that Rogers went to his death as if he were walking to his wedding. By God's great mercy, he died with comparative ease. And so the first Marian martyr pass away, close quote. Well, that's a stirring story from church history, 
that ought to really challenge our hearts today, just to ask the simple question would be, how would you respond given the same circumstances? If you were in that similar situation that for preaching the gospel or standing for the gospel or standing for Christ, you knew it would cost you your life, how would you respond? And while suffering that we face today, oftentimes on a daily basis, is not yet reach that magnitude, it is never too early to prepare yourselves for what might be ahead. The church of Smyrna was no stranger to persecution. Without a doubt, this was the most persecuted church of the seven churches of Revelation. But in the midst of their persecution, they received an encouraging letter from Jesus himself that here in the midst of their persecution, him who had walked before them and who had walked in their shoes and understood their plight, writes this letter to the church of Smyrna to encourage them. And so let's listen carefully this morning to Christ's words originally intended for this church of Smyrna and subsequently available and intended for each one of our ears this morning who might be walking on a similar path. As I told you last week, we're going to look at a five-part outline for each one of these churches of Revelation. We'll look at first the setting or speaker, then the strengths of the church that's being addressed, and then either the sin or the suffering of what that church is going through, a solution is then offered, and then the summation as Christ gives a final comment about what to consider based on what that church is going through. And so we'll follow that same outline this morning. The first heading then is the setting, and your next blank there, if you are taking notes, says the city, and we're obviously here talking about the city of Smyrna, where verse 8 says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write... So that's what we're talking about, the church of Smyrna. Smyrna was a town, a city that was argued by some to be the most beautiful city of Asia Minor. Many called it the crown of Asia. It's not hard to see why when we read about how its thriving seaport city was nestled in a picturesque natural setting. Smyrna was on the gulf of the Aegean Sea and flanked by circular uh, surroundings and hills. One uh, of those is called the Pegas. In addition to a busy harbor, there was much traffic approaching the city from the road that ran through the rich Hermas River Valley. Not only was the city beautiful, but it was also well designed. The borders of Smyrna stretched from the bay up to the slopes of the Pegas, the famous hill covered with temples and other public buildings. The streets were well laid out. The outlying ones were lined with groves of trees, Uh, Smyrna's most famous street called the Street of Gold, as it was called, curved around the slopes up on the hillside. And at one end was the temple of the Greek goddess Sybil. And at the other end was the Greek temple uh, made out for the Greek god Zeus. And in between them were temples of Apollo, temples of Asclepius, temples of Aphrodite. And because of the symmetrical arrangement and the elevated altitude, these buildings were called the crown of Smyrna. In other words, a beautiful setting, picturesque setting up there on the hillside. And located about 40 miles north of Ephesus, Smyrna had a, a natural landlocked harbor where the entire fleet of ships could be sheltered from some outside attack. And this grand harbor allowed it to be second only to Ephesus in exports. But unlike Ephesus, this city still exists today as the modern-day Turkey city of Izmir. Alexander the Great himself 
had determined to make Smyrna the model Greek city. And with such a noble influence, Smyrna had blossomed into a town of advanced culture. It was a place where the arts and education and philosophy and the sciences flourished. It also boasted of an unrivaled library and a treasured monument to Homer, who was thought to have been born there. Smyrna was housed, uh, it housed the largest public theater in Asia. And inscribed on its coinage were the words, first in Asia, in beauty, and in size. And few would argue with that inscription. With a population of about 200,000 and a successful economy, Smyrna had a significant relationship with Rome. And like Ephesus, it was also self-governing. Smyrna was known as a thriving center of Roman emperor worship. In fact, when the six of the seven cities competed for the privilege of erecting a temple to Rome, Smyrna was chosen over the others because of her allegiance to Caesar, and that allegiance to Caesar was unquestioned. Well, such is the city of Smyrna. Well, now that we've talked about the setting a little bit, let's talk about the church. Your next blank, the church there in Smyrna. He's writing the angel, which is a representative, a messenger to the church of Smyrna. Scripture does not record for us any details of the church of Smyrna outside of these four verses. And it seems evident that it was planted by Paul at the end of the first century. And we also know that life certainly was difficult and dangerous for believers who belonged to this particular church. And as a hotbed of emperor worship, the current emperor Domitian made it a capital offense to refuse to offer an annual sacrifice to the emperor. And because of this, many Christians faced execution. The most famous of Smyrna's martyrs martyrs was Polycarp, who was a personal disciple of this apostle, John. The Greek word for Smyrna is the Hebrew word for myrrh. So myrrh, Smyrna, it's the same word. Myrrh, you know, is a resinous substance giving off a a fragrant odor. It was used as perfume for the living and as aromatherapy for the dead. And like myrrh, which was produced by crushing a fragrant, a flagrant, uh, excuse me, a fragrant plant, the church of Smyrna would be crushed only to give off a fragrant aroma of faithfulness to God. Myrrh, as you know, is what the wise man brought to sacrifice to Jesus when he was a little bit older. Matthew 2:11 says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's the same word for Smyrna, this idea of a fragrant aroma. We also know that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh while he was on the cross, but he would not take it. We also know that when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepared Jesus's body for burial, they brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And because the believers of the church of Smyrna loved Christ, they were willing to suffer as he suffered. And in doing so, the sweetness of their faith is evident for us all to take in this morning. Sometimes a flower or an herb needs to be crushed in order for you to smell its full aroma. And in the midst of suffering, we find out a whole lot 
about our hearts and about our aroma. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are, being, who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to another, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? The church of Smyrna had an incredible aroma. And I want to know, how about you this morning? Maybe you're in the midst of some type of persecution. Maybe you're sensing that in your marriage, in your home, at work, in your neighborhood, with your family. Maybe you're feeling that just from the government. As we know, the church has had a difficult time charting its course throughout what we're experiencing today in our country. And as you're pressed, and as you're crushed, and as you're going through a difficult time, I just want to know, what kind of aroma are you letting off? When, when your kids watch you, when uh, your friends are with you, what are they smelling when they are near you? What odor comes from your life when you face immense suffering? Well, I trust that God would encourage us this morning that we would be able to display a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's not always easy. Is it? When you're in a difficult time, sometimes you stink. Sometimes I stink because sometimes we respond in the flesh, but God's calling us to respond in the spirit, and he's building up his church so that we could respond with that fragrant aroma as unto the Lord as an act of worship. And as in each address to these seven churches, there is a characteristic also given, your next blank, a characteristic of the speaker is also emphasized. So your next blank says the characteristic of Christ emphasized. Look again at verse 8. It's to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And so notice here that Jesus emphasizes the first and the last. He's talking about himself. He's revealing these truths to the churches, and he's referring to himself as the first and the last. This is a clear claim to Christ's deity. This is a, a clear statement that Jesus is saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is a clear claim to his deity, and according to Isaiah 44, verse 6, and Isaiah 48, verse 12, the first and the last was a title reserved for God. And so Jesus is saying that he is the same in essence as God. Jesus has always been and he always will be. And this phrase identifies him as the glorified, exalted Lord. This phrase, it, 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 it describes Jesus as eternal, as the infinite God, as the agent of creation, and as him who will always be even after the world is destroyed. Jesus Christ transcends time, he transcends space, and he transcends all of creation. And Jesus revealed his eternal nature to his church because in the midst of suffering, an eternal perspective is most needed. So while the church of Smyrna is being persecuted and they don't know if they're going to make it to the end, Jesus is just reminding them the one writing this letter to you is the first and the last. And even if you're snuffed out, even if you lose your life, if your life is in me, you'll live forever. And so in the midst of our trials, let us remember that Jesus existed before time, that he rules over time, and that he will reign for all time. 
Now, not only do we learn that Jesus is eternal, but he's also, the end of verse 8 says that he is the living one or the one who was dead. He said who died and he came to life. And so we're just reminded here of the gospel message of his crucifixion and his resurrection. He is the living one. He was dead, but now he's been resurrected. And so knowing that they were about to undergo difficult times, Jesus was reminding them that he transcends temporal matters and that by his life, we too can live. It is his victory over death that causes the church to be victorious in the face of death. And we always need to be reminded that all martyrs would be raised from the dead to life because of the power of the cross. And so that's the encouraging message he's given to Smyrna. You might die, but you'll always be alive. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and following reminds us, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm just reminding you this morning, dear church of Placerita, that victory is yours in Christ. No matter who wins the election, no matter what happens to religious liberty, no matter what happens in your life, in this culture, in, in, uh, in America today, Jesus has already won. So we can be greatly encouraged this morning to know that we serve the victor, and he gives us victory, and it's not always physical. There's a spiritual element and a plane that we have to climb into and live our life in because this world will bring you down. But Christ always brings us up. He's the first and the last. He died, but now he's alive, and he's alive forevermore. So we can be greatly encouraged by these words that Christ is giving to Smyrna this morning. Let's move on to our second heading, if we can. Number two, each of the churches, he then addresses some sin or suffering. And I wanted you to know that there is no sin mentioned in the church of Smyrna. Just like the sixth church, which is the church of Philadelphia, that we'll get to in a few weeks, there's no sin mentioned in that particular church either. But he is going to talk about their suffering that they're facing. And so your first blank talks about political persecution. Political persecution, verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation. That word tribulation means pressure. Nothing escapes the all-seeing eyes of the Lord. He knew about every heartache, every pain. The word know here, when Jesus says, I know about your tribulation, he means he, he has the, the kind of knowledge that comes by personal experience. Jesus had already faced immense persecution as he was crucified himself. And so as he's looking at Smyrna, he's like, I know what you're going through. I know the kind of tribulation, the kind of pressure that you're facing, and I know it by personal experience. Now listen, as Christians, we can encourage anybody at any time with the comfort that we have received from God. And the Bible tells us that we receive that comfort so that we can comfort others with that comfort that we've received. But it is true that sometimes when somebody's been through exactly what you're going through, and they can look you in the eye and say, hey, I've been there. I've been there through divorce. I've been there through the loss of a parent or the loss of a child, or I've been there through the difficulty of being stabbed in the back by your friend, let me share with you how God brought me through. That's a beautiful friend. That's a beautiful shepherding moment. You don't have to go through suffering to comfort somebody because we're comforting them with Christ's comfort, but there is something about, hey, I know what you're going through, and that's what Jesus is saying to Smyrna. He knows because of his own firsthand involvement. 
and he knows how to offer that, which ought to encourage us that when you do go through suffering, you ought to immediately be thinking like, somebody else is going to walk through this. I'm not the only one on the planet who's probably going to face this particular type of suffering, which means I need to get my eyes out of my own predicament at times, and who else is walking through what I'm going through, because I want to make sure I'm there for them. I want to make sure I can be there to walk with them and encourage them because I know how bad it hurts. I know how difficult it can be. God, help me to be that strength in someone else's life. You see, Jesus had been to the cross. He knew what it was like to suffer in the hands of godless men. Initially, the Christians were persecuted by the Jews, not by the Romans, but in 67 AD, everything changed. And the reason for that was because a deranged, paranoid Roman emperor came into power, as you know, the emperor Nero. And under his insanity, the flames of persecution were ignited against the church. And he blamed Christians for his own political problems and would even martyr believers by dipping them in stiff wax and hanging them in the trees of his garden and set them on fire to light up the night sky. In 81 AD, another Roman emperor by the name of Domitian rose to power and in many ways was even more ruthless than Nero. Suddenly, a second wave of persecution against Christians began to sweep through the empire. And with the diversity of the peoples and cultures that were conquered under Romans' tyranny, there was an attempt to keep the empire unified. And so that attempt was going to be found in emperor worship. Emperor worship became the answer. The worship of Caesar would tie the empire together, or so they thought. And so once a year, each citizen of Rome would appear before a statue of Caesar and publicly confess his allegiance to the deity of the emperor. In other words, Domitian claimed to be a god and demanded to be worshipped. And for the majority of the Roman citizens, since they were pagan, they didn't care. They'll go do whatever Rome wants them to do just to kind of get by and make life easy. Wasn't a big deal for them. But for a true Christian, they knew that this went directly against the commandment of Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall serve no other gods before me. The first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shall have no other god before me. So for a Christian... To somehow bow down and worship the emperor God was going to be committing the sin of idolatry. And to, to worship Caesar was spiritual treason against the king of heaven. And doing so would be denouncing his lordship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Instead of saying Caesar is Lord, the brave Christian there in Smyrna would say Christ is Lord. And as a result, many of those Christians in Smyrna lost their lives. And while we don't face, again, that same level of suffering today, some political persecution still persists here in the 21st century. And in the United States of America, Christians and churches are losing more and more and more of their freedoms at the hand of and a government that has not been redeemed. You understand that our government, no matter who you're voting for, that red party or that blue party isn't necessarily the answer to what God wants to do in his church today. I mean, consider this as far as talking about just losing freedoms. You guys have maybe heard some of these things over the years, but it has been ruled as unconstitutional today if a student were to pray out loud over his lunch at school. 
It has been ruled unconstitutional today for kindergarten students to recite the prayer, we thank you for the flowers so sweet, we thank you for the food that we eat, we thank you for the birds that sing, we thank you for everything. It's been outlawed. You can't technically pray that prayer in school. I mean, maybe some schools do it and you get by with it, but I'm just saying there's been court cases that have ruled that as unconstitutional. It has been ruled as unconstitutional today for a board of education at any public school to use or refer to the word of God in any way, in any official writing. It has been ruled as unconstitutional today for the Ten Commandments to be hung on the walls of our schools, courthouse, or on any public building. It has been ruled as unconstitutional today for any public official, public servant, or public teacher to tell someone, Merry Christmas. They can't do it while they're at work, but they can say Happy Halloween all day long. Well, tell me that ain't messed up. <laughs> it's like, oh, Happy Halloween. Merry oh, I can't say that. Right, how ridiculous is that? It has been ruled as unconstitutional today for a school graduation to contain an opening or a closing prayer. I mean, they say a word of silence, but technically it's not supposed to be a prayer. I mean, my, my goodness, even during the COVID quarantine, we've been asked as a church not to sing, not to meet together inside of our buildings, not to shorten all of our ministries. And I understand we want to be careful with what's going on. We're, we are meeting outside. Some of us, you know, are, are free to wear masks. I understand that it's a, you know, we preached a whole series about that a, a couple of months ago. But the point is the government does seem to be taking powerful statements ahead to restrict the freedoms of exercise of worship away from churches. And you know what? We got to be reminded that God is bigger than our government. And with his help, we can take a stand for Jesus Christ in our schools and in our community and in our churches. And we've got to do that. We've got to stand up and take a stand against what's going on. And part of that is how you vote. And part of that is how you exercise your liberty, trusting God to help provide you the wisdom to know what to do in each and every situation. And so not only was there political persecution that Smyrna was going through, there was economic persecution. That's your next blank, economic persecution. Notice he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know your tribulation and your poverty. The, there are two words in the Greek which the word poverty comes from. They, they both uh, talk about being poor. One of those words means that you don't have anything extra. The other word means that you don't have anything at all. The word for poverty in this setting is the one that means you don't have anything at all. It describes someone who has lost their job. They are out on the street. The Christians were in poverty, not because of a bad economy, but because of the fact the government had cracked down on their ability to practice their business because they were known to be Christians. They confessed Christ to be Lord, not Caesar. And if they did that, they would be fired from their jobs. They would be shunned by their clients. Clients, they would be railroaded out of any business attempt, and anyone else prospering economically would, would just completely uh, walk around the Christian. The Christians had gone bankrupt. They had nothing to their name. And economic pressure and persecution, just like was there in Smyrna, is mounting in Christian businessmen and women's decisions that they have to make today. I mean, if you run your own business, you know that there are certain things that you have to, to live up to because you're a Christian and your conscience, your conscience is accountable to God. 
and yet there's certain practices that happen or don't happen in a way that, that uh, dishonor God, and you might be feeling at times economic pressure and persecution that's mounting in your own business. And again, we just have to thank God this morning that he's bigger than economic persecution. And come hell or high water, the Christian can per- persevere by the grace of God. You keep making right decisions before God because you know what? James 2, 5 says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And that's why we read in this text, but you are rich. He says, you're poor physically, but you're rich because you have Christ. You're rich because you have God's currency of salvation and of mercy and of grace. And if you had to pick one, hopefully you're picking God's currency of life in Christ and not just to make a buck. And so these Smyrna Christians were facing political persecution. They're facing economic persecution. They're facing, your next blank says, religious persecution. Verse 9 talks about the slander of those who were there who were Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Our our Lord says that, that they slander those who say they are Jews and are not, although these Jews had a physical lineage to Abraham, they were not true spiritual Jews. You say, what do you mean? Well, I'm talking about Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one who is a Jew is one merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, just because they say they were Jews doesn't mean that they love and fear the God of heaven. If they did, then in their hearts, they would have also been circumcised spiritually, and they would fear Jesus, who was the king of the Jews, but instead they crucified him. And so some of these Jews didn't belong to God at all, even though ethnically they were God's chosen people. He didn't choose spiritually to save each and every Jew. Only those that were children of the promise would be saved who came to faith through Christ, not just because of their physical lineage. So he's making that understanding here. And we have to understand that the the Old Testament oftentimes places an emphasis on ethnic Israel, while the focus of the New Testament is a little bit more on the spiritual gathering of the church, that one new man under the new covenant believers in the church. And so when Revelation chapter 2 verse 9 is referring to the unbelieving Jews of Smyrna, he's basically saying they've rejected Christ. They've rejected the God who created them, and while they were still ethnically considered Jewish, they were spiritually considered as slanderers and as blasphemers. The word slander really means blasphemy or to speak against, and there were at least six different ways in which these so-called Jews were slandering the Christians of Smyrna. Because Christians partook of Christ's body and blood, they were called cannibals, Because they called their common meal a love feast, Christians were accused of gathering for orgies of lust. Because Christians at times did have families split over their faith, they were accused of being anti-family. Because Christians worshipped without images, they were accused of being atheists. Because they would not say Caesar is Lord, Christians were accused of being politically disloyal. And because Christians, were, because Christians taught that the world ended with fire, they were accused of being arsonists. This is the kind of religious persecution they're getting, not only from, from Rome, but from their Jewish 
their Jewish relations as well. And so religious persecution, we know, still exists today. Conservative Christians are often ridiculed by even liberal Christians who say they love God, but then they also want to legalize abortion. I, I still don't get this, but there's so many who say, I'm a Christian, but they want to legalize abortion. They want to modernize Christian morals. They want to embrace homosexuality and celebrate that practice. They want to embrace heterosexual fornication and celebrate that practice. They want to celebrate getting drunk or smoking pot. And Bible churches like ours are often thought of as being backwards, archaic, stuck in the mud when it comes to the fundamentals of the faith. Look, we get persecuted all the time by other churches who say we're legalistic because we're just holding up the Bible. That's all we're doing. We're trying to hold up God's word, say this is truth, It stands for all time, for all people. There's principles in it that guide us to make faithful decisions, and yet other churches are like, no, 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 you guys need to calm down. You just kind of got to go with the culture on some of these issues. Not only that, your next blank says another kind of persecution they're facing is just straight up satanic persecution. Again, there in verse 9, when it says those unbelieving Jews there are a synagogue of Satan. Notice that these unbelieving, non-spiritual Jews are not a part of the church of believers, but rather of the synagogue of Satan. This is a clear reference to the fact that these so-called Jews are not working for God, but they're working for the devil himself. And because of their unbelief, they were instruments of Satan used by hell to oppose the programs of God. They were at Satan's disposal to carry out his evil desires. You say, Adam, you're sounding a little harsh about churches that don't hold to the gospel. Well, my goodness, we've got to have discernment to know what's right and what's wrong. And if you say that you love Jesus and that you've repented of your sins, but you embrace and celebrate ongoing sins, then how can you say that you have a true gospel understanding? And so our job as a church is to point that out just as Jesus did, as Jesus came and in John 8, looking at the Jews who said they loved God, he said to them, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth. And because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Listen, our job is to examine every person, every pastor, every woman, every man, And what they say, and if what they say honors Jesus and is true to Scripture from A to Z, through the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God's Word, it's not like somebody can just say, oh, I love Jesus, but I also think it's okay to practice unrepentant sin and and to never turn from that. Then it's like, well, how can you love Jesus? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So we have to understand there's a consistency that God calls us to, and yet there are countless churches across this land that are nothing more than strongholds of Satan. They do not preach the true gospel of Christ. They deny the inerrancy of Scripture. They cast scorn on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They promote all kinds of sexual license. They have forsaken the Word of God by ordaining unrepentant sinners to lead churches. They have left their first love. But I've got news for you this morning. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail over the true church. 
And while the true church is being persecuted, Jesus died for the true church. And he will purify his church. And his church, the true church of Jesus Christ, will suffer, but will also be victorious. And so I'm welcoming you into a church that will face immense suffering, but we're going to hold true to the word of God. We're going to stand with the victor. We're going we're to stand with Jesus in every way, no matter what this world does, no matter what this world says, we will not leave our first love. And we're asking you to join us in doing that. The last kind of persecution that's listed here would be physical persecution. If you look at chapter uh, 2, we're in verse 10, and it says, uh, behold, I'm skipping to the second part of verse 10, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So we're, we're seeing here that the devil is going to throw some of these Christians from Smyrna into prison. God may allow you to suffer physically for the gospel's sake. And this is part of what even the book of Job is about. Early on in biblical history, God allowed Satan to take everything away from him, Job chapter 1. But in Job chapter 2, God allowed Satan to inflict on Job physical and bodily suffering. Because Satan's thought was, well, if you take everything away from Job, including all of his money and all of his family, he's still not going to curse you. But if you strike his body and you, you mess with his flesh, he won't be able to handle that. He'll curse you to his face. And so the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome, loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. This is just an example of physical suffering. You say, well, why did Job go through that? Because God was already proving his point that the faith of a true Christian will persevere no matter what. You can strip everything away. You can take away his physical health for whatever reason, and if he's truly a Christian, he will stay true to the faith, and that's what Job did. He wasn't perfect, we understand in verses, uh, chapters 3 through 37, Job struggled at times, but God redeemed him in the end, and he made it through. We know that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, when he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Persecution is ordained by God to make us stronger. Persecution is to make you more powerful in your walk with Christ every moment of every day, but you have to have the right perspective. And if you start to moan and complain and only see what's in front of you, you might not make it. But if you go above that to God's word, to God's presence, to the person of Christ, he will pull you through no matter what kind of persecution that you're facing this morning. That's what Smyrna was going through. And so we, next we read in our next heading here about the strengths of Smyrna. Christ is going to encourage them by nothing else. And your next blank says no specific sin is addressed. When he's writing to them, he says... Um, he says to them in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, you're rich, uh, that he's telling them that those that are slandering them who say they're Jews and will not, but are the synagogue of Satan, there's an obvious strength here, and that, that strength would just be this, there's no sin mentioned. 
and all of the other churches except Philadelphia, he begins to address things that they need to fix. But with with uh, this church, he only points out the persecution they're facing. There's no address of sin whatsoever. That means this is a godly church. This church is a godly church. Your next blank says the suffering led to spiritual richness. The suffering that they faced led to that spiritual richness. Remember there in verse 9 where it says you're poverty, but you are rich. And so he's just reminding them that they have that perspective of they may not have a lot of money, but they have a lot of Christ. And to be rich means that they were satisfied in Jesus. To be rich doesn't necessarily mean that your church prospers with nice buildings and that you prosper at home. As we've already said, you might face trouble in your business, but it means that you're rich in Christ. You're rich in love. You're rich in your ministry. In fact, it was interesting. I was listening to MacArthur preach through the seven churches of Revelation. I think he's done it a couple of times. And he was saying that before the Iron Curtain fell... The pastors in Russia were obviously being faithful in preaching the gospel, but facing immense persecution. And after the wall fell, MacArthur and many other Christians were able to go into uh, some of these places where the Western world had not been in over you know, a generation. And so after developing some relationships with some godly pastors, I remember on a couple of occasions, MacArthur saying things like how encouraged he was that so many of these churches had not given in to bad doctrine because all they had was a Bible. And by holding on to the Bible, they had built strong churches with strong believers. And this one pastor that he built a relationship with after he came and visited, I think, the States, told John, he said, I could never be a pastor in the States. And so MacArthur was thinking, like, well, why not, man? Who would want to be in, like, Eastern Europe or in Russia uh, versus being in the States, just the comfort of living. And that was the exact thing he said, is that in the States, it seems to me that Christians are weak and they're materialistic and they're so distracted with all the options that they have in life. It would be harder for me as a Russian pastor to pastor a church in the United States of America than to pastor where I live. And I just think that's a profound statement, isn't it? An observation where the Bible, again, reminds us that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the kind of the poverty we need. Physical poverty is one thing. Spiritual poverty is another. But the idea is that we need to be poor in order that we can be rich in Christ. Our fourth heading this morning, number four, the solution. So what does Christ say that he's going to do? Well, he gives two directives in verse 10 where he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So the two directives he gives, number one, your next blank says, fear not the woes of the world, where Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna that some of them will be thrown into prison. See where he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So he tells them, some of you will be thrown into prison for 10 days and will be tested. We don't have any other information about why they were thrown into prison, though we can guess for being Christians, who threw them into prison, probably Rome, uh, why the tribulation would last only 10 days, we don't know. The only reason it's given is that you might be tested. And sometimes that's what God does. He strengthens his church by allowing them to go through testing. This may help weed out the fair-weathered Christians. This might help separate the wheat from the chaff. This might help separate true believers from fake believers. This will help the true believer be deepened in their conviction for the Lord. 
Second, or excuse me, First Peter, First Peter chapter one, verse six and seven says, "In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith." more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And my friends, that's what trials do. Trials are to make you stronger. Trials are to reveal the genuineness of your faith. Trials are to help our faith appear more precious than pure gold. Trials are to get the impurities and the dross out of your life. Trials are to result in praise and in glory and in honor. That's what they do. So when trials come, we need not to fear those trials. Jesus told the church of Smyrna not to be afraid. Do not fear what you are about to suffer He has warned Smyrna, he is preparing Smyrna, and he is encouraging them that this is not the end. Jesus also says in the Gospels, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, temporal persecution is not going to tamper with your soul. Earthly trials cannot destroy your spirit. Physical tribulation cannot send you to hell. But Jesus can. So he's like, don't worry about those who are going to kill the flesh. That might happen, but you're not fully going to face that ultimate consequence of hell just because your body was killed. But you better fear him, meaning fear God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. All those who reject Jesus and who accept idolatry and accept false teaching and accept sinful worldly pleasures as a way of life will suffer in hell for all eternity. The way to not be fearful is to replace one fear with another. Fear God, don't fear man. Be in awe of God Don't be in angst at the punishment of man. Fear your creator, not your captor. Joshua says in chapter 1, verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so we've got to understand here that God's calling us to fear him, not like, oh, well, what's going to happen after the election? Well, what's going to happen if we continue to trend as a state in California? Please don't move to Idaho. Stay here with me, all right? I'm staying right here. If you want, if you want to go to Idaho, that's fine, all right? But I'm just saying, like, the answer is not always just to run. Like, sometimes it's like, let's stand up, let's dig in, and let's fight. You with me? All right, thank you for the few Californians over here. The rest of you aren't so sure. Just to be clear, it's okay if you leave. I'm just inviting you to stay. I want to be on the front lines where the battle's at the fiercest place and to go in with the gospel ahead of me and Christ behind me. He surrounds us, right? Why not have that mindset instead of like, well, I just can't take anymore. Boom, I'm out of here. I love you, Idaho people, Texas people. Tennessee people, I love all of you. I know you are, all right? I know you are. I love you. You're free to go, but I love you. But I'm, like, I'm loving the ones who are staying a little bit more. <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right. The next blank says, to the other directive here we see, said basically fear God, not fear man. The next one says, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. 
verse 10 says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. I just love that encouragement. He's saying, don't stop. Don't give in. Don't lose hope. Don't quit. Don't give up. Be faithful and dependent on the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 10, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so we are called to believe, we're called to have faith, we're called to endure to the end. And if your belief or your faith doesn't endure to the end, then it's not real faith. Do you get that? If it doesn't endure all the way to the end, throughout the fiercest part of persecution, then it might not be real faith. This is like the seed that was sown on the path where the birds came and devoured it. If your faith doesn't endure, then it's like the seed that fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and immediately it sprang up. But when the sun came out and in the heat of the day, it was scorched and it withered away since it had no root. If your faith does not endure to the very end, then it's like the seed that fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it out and it bore no fruit. And so the only real solution to suffering is to fear God, not to fear man and to be faithful in your walk with Christ until you die or until he returns. And when you are faithful to the very end, you will receive the crown of life. Now, I don't believe that the crown will be worn on your head but rather it's a reference to eternal life. You'll be given this prize, this reward, the crown of life, meaning you'll be given eternal life. Eternal life is your prize. Eternal life is your reward. You will live with Christ and you will be in his presence forever and forever and forever. And by the way, that's what the world is so afraid of. The world is still so afraid of getting older and the world is so afraid of dying. That they're, that they're fearful to no end. And for the Christian, we want to be good stewards of our body. And we want to make wise decisions in how we live. But we're not to live a life of fear. Because we know that our ultimate price isn't another year of life. But life eternal. Aren't you thankful? It's not just like, oh, we can make sure you'll live to 80 if you do this. Or 90. Or you're going to live to 100. I, I can't wait to be 105. Aren't you excited about that? I'm just like, take me home, Lord, I'm ready. I have a crown of life. You have a crown of life in Christ. The greatest thing that you could ever want, eternal life, is given to those who fear God and who are faithful to the very end. And in our last heading this morning, the summation of it all, verse 11, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So your next blank says the final counsel. Again, Jesus says this throughout to all seven churches. If you have a spiritual ear to hear, let him hear, which I told you last week means he's saying, put it into practice. Hear it, let it transform you, and then live it out. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. If you're hearing what Jesus is saying, then he's saying, put it into practice. Your next blank says the faithful overcomer. The faithful overcomer, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. So again, you are in Christ a faithful overcomer. The one who conquers is a Christian who overcomes ultimately sin. You don't have to live a life in bondage. You don't have to live a life where you're addicted to some sin and you can never change. You are an overcomer and you will overcome death if you're in Christ, and you will overcome temptation in this life if you're in Christ, because that's who you are. You're an overcomer by the blood of Jesus. 
You overcome sin's penalty, and you overcome sin's power, and you're being purified every day. Keep fighting. Don't give in. Be reminded of who you are in Christ this day. The faithful are overcomers. And then lastly, there is this forever promise at the end of verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Those who overcome will never face God's judgment. The first death is when you die physically. The second death we think here is probably a reference to God's eternal punishment in hell because it's discussed further in the book of Revelation chapter 20 verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake in the fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire says the same thing in Revelation 21 verse 8. That second death being the ultimate forever death of God's judgment. Now, I told you a little bit about Smyrna, and I told you that Polycarp was there. Do you remember that? Polycarp was a disciple of John, and he was uh, the Christian bishop or lead pastor at some point of the church of Smyrna, this guy Polycarp. And this early church father, who was discipled by John, would have most definitely probably heard these words read and even maybe preached these same words to that church as he served there for some time as the pastor. And the history of the life of Polycarp was that he would not bow the knee to Caesar, so Rome finally sought him out. And he simply went to, when he knew that his end was imminent, they went to his house, the Roman officials, and they, they could not find him until they seized two youths, one of them they tortured until they finally found his whereabouts. And when the soldiers came, they were fully armed as if to catch a dangerous criminal. And Polycarp refused to run, saying, quote, the will of God will be done. When they entered the house, Polycarp came down and he spoke with his captors. They marveled at his age and some of them said, was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? In other words, an older, weaker man. We, we brought all these soldiers to capture him. Polycarp ordered that the men be offered something to eat and drink. And he requested to have an hour of solitude in order to pray. One hour became two. And it is said that Polycarp was so full of the grace of God that to the astonishment of the men who heard him pray, then they began to repent that they had come forth against such a godly old man. I can just imagine his prayer, can't you? God, I'm praying for these men who were coming to take my life. And, he's, and these men were beginning to repent. They still took him, however, as was their soldier duty, to the stadium for his death. And there, Polycarp was burned at the stake and then stabbed when the fire failed to consume his body. There, these are some of Polycarp's last words. That's what he said when he's there at the stake. Quote, Thou threatens me with fire, which burneth for an hour. And after a little while is extinguished, but art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou bring forth what thou wilt? And tradition tells us that his executioners did not nail him to the stake as was customary, before they could, Polycarp told them, leave me as I am, for he that giveth me strength 
to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. The people of the church of Smyrna and every Christian today who faces persecution must learn to look to Christ who will keep you in his arms, to look to Christ who will help you be solid and steadfast in the midst of a world of suffering. And may we remember the bold proclamation of Psalm 56, 11 that says, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? This morning, I'm calling you to put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're afraid of what may happen, it might be that your faith is not anchored in Christ. And if your faith is anchored in anything but Christ, that fear will knock you over. So I'm here this morning to call you to Christ and to say, come and place your anchor in Christ who is steadfast and immovable. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I'm calling you out of sin and out of darkness, and I'm calling you into light. And I don't want you to leave this morning without having an opportunity to bow your head before the God who created you and to give your heart to him and to say, God, I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I want to be born again. I want to have that kind of courage. I want to have that kind of faith that I've heard about with some of these martyrs today. God, I, I want to give my life to you so that no matter what happens in this world, that I know I'm secure in your hands. If that's you this morning, after our last song, we're going to invite you up front. We're going to have people standing right here after we take communion. We don't want you to leave this morning if you need to give your heart to Christ. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian and you've been saved by grace alone and faith alone, but somehow you've been stirred up a little bit this morning by God's word and you need to talk to somebody. We'd love to pray with you, offer you a word of counsel, get you plugged into our counseling ministry. We're here as a church to say, look, it's going to get hotter, but Christ's love is going to get greater and stronger, and you can weather whatever storm you're in with his help, with his word, and with his spirit inside of you. And if you need help this morning for anything that's going on in your life, please, after we take communion, you just come right up front. We're going to have some people right here that would love to minister and pray to you. Why don't we all close our service in prayer now as we prepare even to take place part in communion. Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to just be here before you, not worried about the time, not worried about the day. We're just worried about walking with Christ, making sure that we're hearing from you this morning, making sure that we're being filled with your love, your encouragement, your presence, your spirit, your life in our life. It's not about us, O oh Lord. Thank you for that reminder, not unto us, O oh Lord, not unto us, but to your name. We give glory. God, we want to give you all glory and honor and praise forever and ever. We want to bow before you as we read in Revelation 4 earlier today, God, that it's all about you. It's all about your name. It's all about your blood that was shed. It's all about the crown of life that you've given freely to us by faith alone. I pray, God, that as we prepare our hearts even to take place, take part in the Lord's table this morning, that you would encourage us, that you would allow us to just say, this is for real. We're here to identify with Christ in all of his glory, but we're also here to identify with Christ and to remember him in all of his suffering. And so as we sing a couple of stanzas here to prepare our heart to take place in the Lord's table, I pray that you would stir us, minister to us, help us to feel and to know your love for us 
is very concrete. It's very tangible, and it changes us. And so we want to spend these precious moments here at the end of the service just thinking about your love for us as you've demonstrated on the cross. Be glorified in this time together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.